Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Shout out to the man, the myth, the legend, super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Hey, 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 yo. What was the other one? It was, it was, hoorah, 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 hoorah. And huzzah. And huzzah. And Atoski. That's right. Huzzah is the one where if you're like a knight mm-hmm. in something, you know, that's your rallying cry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you and I both will occasionally throw it in an email. No doubt. Yeah. Uh, I'm it's part ben- of the culture of How <laughs> Stuff Works. Yeah, I'm Ben Bullet. You're Noel Brown. Because I'm. Big shout out to How Stuff Works, man. We've been we've been doing this for a while. It's crazy that we haven't gotten to this story earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's a good, for our, our folks in playing along at home, what's a good recap? Yeah, for, I mean, for, uh, well, first of all, listen to the episode one uh, that mm-hmm. gives you a good, this is a really backstory rich uh, tale yeah. here. So I think we uh, we did our due diligence there, um, teased a little bit about some of the incredible interactions between the U.S. Air Force mm-hmm. um, and uh, Hollywood, baby Hollywood, and some of the most brilliant set designers and, and builders and fabricators and, you know, just creative minds uh, of the time to camouflage these crucial airplane manufacturing facilities to make them look like suburban towns in the hopes um, that the Japanese bombers would be confused and they would bomb other stuff. But then we ended the story uh, of episode one kind of on the movie studios now being the only ones not camouflaged in this cluster of these kind of warehousey airplane hangar type facilities to which the the executives were like, hey, we need this too because now we're going to be seen as the target. Right. Because we look a lot like airplane hangars. So I think that's that's where we enter. That's perfect. Yeah, with Boeing because that really was what we teased this whole series to be about. I don't know that we've mentioned Boeing specifically quite yet. No, we just, we gave them a hard time about the planes and the fact that's that right. I, I almost died on one. But uh, <laughs> I don't think we mentioned that part, but moving oh, on. Yeah, yeah. Really, it's fine. Uh, You're okay. Our our hero of the story here is the Boeing Wonderland. That's that's what part two of this series is really focusing on. So, like you said, everybody's trying to keep up with the Joneses. Uh, now, camouflage is something you must have because all these other places are camouflaged. Mm-hmm. So, Lockheed's Cloverfield um, facility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, if we travel to Seattle, we'll see that Boeing's president, Philip Johnson, has been paying attention to his buddies at Douglas Aircraft, and he says, look, the biggest deal for us at Boeing is Plant 2. Despite the name, it is our number one... Inspired. Our number one asset. (laughs) Right. So so it's uh, December 11th, four days after Pearl Harbor, Boeing puts out a press release, and they say the following. Plant 2 has been, quote, Entirely transformed from a daylight plant to a blackout plant, enabling all-night operations during blackouts. Okay. It goes on a little braggadociously. This plant is believed to be one of the first, if not the first, major defense plant in the country to complete 
this transformation. So I, I talk like a wizard there or something. We both we both made some weird choices mm-hmm. in our quotation voices, but uh, but this is true. What they're saying essentially is that now we can operate overnight. Actually, I think a big thing to say about it is it now means that if you black out the city for bombers are coming, they can still keep working in there. Yes, good point. Max with facts. There it is. Poetry. Poetry. Uh, it's a big deal, you know, because they need to be, we, we, as we mentioned in episode one, the goal that uh, FDR had set for the number of bombers that he wanted in their fleet, is that what you call it, in the sky, um, was insane. 50,000, I believe. Right. So they couldn't, they didn't have a moment to spare. Mm-mm. And uh, we also know that the Boeing News Bureau uh, came out with a report about this uh, and said... Well, they released on April 1st, 1942, but it was not an April Fool's Day joke. What they were describing to the public at large was the urgency created by the Pearl Harbor attack. And they said, look, we're not going to waste any time. We are getting everybody together that we can to help us do this blackout transformation. We're going to have a painting party. We'll have a painting party. Yeah, yeah. And when we say blackout in this situation, we are referring literally to blacking out the building, right? Like painting it as as dark a color as humanly possible. I don't think they had that, like the blackest paint ever that to exist oh, at yeah, that yeah. point. But just, you know, regular old black paint would probably do the trick. And then that, you know, created a shroud around which they could build the, the, the thing that was, you know, meant to catch the eye. Exactly. And again, uh, these enemy bombers will be hunting with their own eyesight. That's right. right. So uh, so it makes sense to black everything out and reduce the amount of light the factory is emitting. Funny, though, to think about it today with, like, advances in GPS technology and imaging, stuff like this wouldn't really work, would it? You'd be able to kind of see the shape or, or kind of know what you were looking at a little better if you had yeah. certain types of radar technology right. or, like, satellite, you know, imagery. But, I mean, even that, there are obviously ways that the military does their best to you know, camouflage their stuff to those kinds of things. It would have been, it'd be a different type of job though, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so Boeing is already blacked out as a factory. You know, the windows are painted and et cetera, uh, but they needed to do more. And so in May of 1942, the Corps of Engineers takes uh, takes on this project. They say, we're going to camouflage this factory in addition to having it blacked out. And again, shout out to Bill uh, Bill Y, who wrote uh, some fantastic research on this. So to accomplish this camouflage, our top talent in the world of military camouflage, the amateur magician, <laughs> Omer, sends one of his boys from Hollywood, a guy named John Stuart Detley, uh, art director. Uh, he, he sends this guy over to the Boeing plant. He had pulled him from MGM from, yeah, from the yeah, whole yeah, yeah. experiments they were doing back on the lots. I just want to add one little thing before we get into the actual full camouflage: the blackout situation with the the paint um, where they was an all hands on deck. Apparently, they required about four miles of air hose in order to uh, allow for the operation of spray guns. So um, we don't have this exact you know square footage or the number of windows that they painted over. But if that's any indication, this is a huge job and a, a massive feat to accomplish in a couple of days. So now we're on to, you know, the business uh, at hand, like to really make this uh, building look like something else. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the idea. Right. And (laughs) so Deadly is living this Hollywood dream. He's got a cool job that everybody wants. He has, you know, that degree in architecture. Uh, He is working as a set designer. He even gets nominated for an Oscar back in the day. Uh, for his work on a film called Bittersweet, which I have not seen. Nor have I. And a lot of the Oscar wins, you know, of of, of this era of, of Hollywood are going to be a little bit deep, deeper cuts sure. than you might think. Yeah. Um, you know, unless they're like the big classics that get remembered. Not all Oscar winners uh, do stand the test of time. But I am interested to see uh, this this guy's work by uh, checking out Bittersweet. Um, uh, I feel like I won't pay attention to the story. Yeah, I'll just be we watching know too much. the sets. I know. We know too much. <laughs> yeah, we've ruined it for ourselves. 
in the stars of that, I'm also not particularly familiar with, Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy. You Those know are, Nelson Eddy. I don't know Nelson. Okay, I don't yeah, either. I, I just thought if I said it with enough panache. Yeah, I, was, I almost, you almost <laughs> had me there. But in 1940, uh, Dutley is only 32 years old, and he actually, like you said, living that Hollywood dream, marries uh, an ingenue uh, by the name of Constance Ockelman. Love it. This is a great uh, old-school Hollywood name. Um, and they uh, were quite a power couple in Hollywood. Very very sought after, both for their own set of skills, um, with Constance, you know, being a uh, up and coming kind of starlet, and of course, Detley being a very sought after um, art director. Question, question for both of you guys: mm-hmm. Do you think a thirty-two-year-old man should marry an eighteen-year-old? A little weird. I don't know. What's the, what's the formula? Uh, Isn't there a formula? Not as bad as Charlie Chaplin. Oh, we know that. Oh sure. no, that's that guy had a darkness yeah, to him. I mean, 32, 18, I mean. Yeah, this is a really cringe. Is it a half era. your age plus seven? What's half your one? age plus seven. Is I, the, even yeah. that I feel yeah. is weirdly misogynistic. Aaron, Aaron, oh, it is. Yeah. I'm just saying it, it is a thing people say. I was yeah. talking to a guy not that long ago, like a friend of mine. He's he's in he's in his like mid twenties. Okay, and he's on Tinder. He's looking at like all these nineteen year old girls. I'm like, dude, like oh, he's like, well, I'm only on, like six right. years older than them. I'm like, yeah, man. Like, I don't know, a teenager. That's like a lot happens a in that six years, though. Yeah. Anyway, like you know, I hesitate to pass judgment. I was just curious on you guys' take. We do know that regardless of an age difference, uh, they had a good union, mm-hmm. right? They seem to get along famously, very much in love. Uh, Constant changes her name to Veronica Lake. Oh, that's I've heard of her. She becomes a pinup girl. <laughs> yeah, really, wow, for World quite, War II, quite a looker. That's right. She was sort of like the what was it, the Shawshank Redemption, uh, the poster of Betty Davis. I right. think yeah, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. of that same kind of you know ilk, yeah. I guess, of you know massively uh, sex symboly type starlets. People are icons. painting her on planes. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So her husband reports for duty in Seattle around this time. He gets pulled by Omer away from Hollywood. And when he gets to Seattle, everybody's very concerned about the Japanese occupation of those Alaskan islands we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And they said, look, it's only a matter of time before we get attacked here in Seattle. We need you to get this plant, this Boeing plant, camouflaged quick, fast, and in a hurry. We need you to camouflage the entirety of 26 acres. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts of a spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right. No, it's it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. 
That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Detley's crews uh, did this with the help of the Seattle District of the Army Corps of Engineers. And that was helpful because this particular structure uh, was a different kind of roof situation than they'd been used to at some of the uh, other airplane facilities, as well as, you know, the Hollywood studios. You could picture those, right? Flat roofed, kind of regularly shaped rectangles. Right. Yeah, they they have to deal with what's called a sawtooth roof. Think kind of like um, stepped down like a ziggurat. It's an uneven surface, varies as much as 35 feet. So to build this, you got to put in other platforms. You have scaffolding. Uh, You also have to have a sprinkler system over the entirety of the 26 acres. Overall, this structure is going to weigh in with 555 tons of steel and half a million feet of wires, just support wires, just like support wires to make the houses look real. That's a really good point, Ben. And I I do just want to mention that, you know, uh, as brilliant of an idea as as, uh, camouflaging these places as, you know, suburban or like civilian um, areas are, it's not like war totally precludes the bombing of civilian areas. (laughs) So there could well have been some collateral, you know, damage uh, to these places despite maybe they weren't targeting it, but maybe something fell nearby and there could have still been a fire, you know, in some of these roofing, elaborate roofing situations. So that's why they had to have that sprinkler system. Mm -hmm. And so travel with us to what was increasingly being called Wonderland because of the variation in the height of those structures that they were building on top of. There were a lot of very steep hills in the area. It's kind of like San Francisco. So there there were three major streets, uh, major fake streets. There were alleys. There were driveways. This was immersive. They even named the streets. Why did they name them? I guess it's just for morale. A, a bomber pilot's not going to be able to read this stuff. But they they had names like Synthetic Street and Burlap Boulevard. Wow. That's, I, I, that's like a little bit of a nod, yeah, yeah, to the to the craft, right, of building these things. You know, it reminds me a lot of, um, so again, early kind of practical effects in movies, like the idea of a matte painting, oh, which yeah. is like, you know, not in- incredibly detailed, uh, but it's it has a massive scope scope to it, so it'll be like the background of like a massive space scene. Then they superimpose the ships on in front of it, or it could be like a cityscape. But if you ever see one of those in person and you look up close, there will be little signs that have like text on them. But if you look yeah. up close, they're just kind of blurs, you know. Like it's sort of like so. This is all about creating the illusion from afar, right? Yes, very much is, and and they make. A bunch of artificial trees, too. It, it reminds me of, you know what it is? It's a life-size version of those little towns you build around toy trains. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It reminds me of um, reminds me of that scene in Beetlejuice where they shrink totally. down. It's really cool. Yeah. Oh, Beetlejuice, man. Oh, it's good. I, I hope the sequel's good because Tim Burton really hasn't had a banger in some time. So you know the I, first sequel idea was Beetlejuice at the Beach? Interesting. It's definitely a choice. Yeah. <laughs> he does have the street, you know, when I think of his outfit, it does kind of remind me of the stripy short pants that like you'd see beachgoers wearing like in, yeah. the, in the 20s or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in any case, there's, there's a lot of set building kind of, you know, methods and tech that come into play to create the illusion from afar that we're talking about. Um, something called a tar and feather feathering, I guess, which is something that was used to make the texture of like trees, for example, you know, where again, from afar, you would never be able to tell the difference because it has that look and and quality. But uh, up close, you would definitely be able to tell what it is. It's the same with stage stuff. You know, if you ever examine stage sets up close, there's a lot of rough edges. There's a lot of things that wouldn't really read if you were up close, but from the audience, it looks great. Yeah. And in absolutely. this case, the audience is 5,000 feet up in the air. <laughs> right. They're thousands of feet away. They're playing big, right? Just like stage acting. And a lot of these things, these uh, homes, these garages, these greenhouses, even the gas station, a lot of them are only about four foot high at the eaves. And so they're, 
so like you said, up close, it doesn't make sense. If you go inside, you're going to see that they just have that sprinkler system. Yeah, that's exactly. Uh, that's Fake all buildings all over again, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> except this infrastructure is literally designed to protect the fake building. Exactly. And so uh, at least two of these homes were going to be occupied by real people. What? Sort, sort of. Oh, because during, kind of stand-ins, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they had guys uh, who ran anti-aircraft guns. And they were oh. stationed in little fake houses on the rooftop. Armed stand-ins. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They Armed were just kicking it. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, so they had to have all these elaborate catwalk systems that would allow people to kind of move between the different spaces uh, for various reasons, for maintenance, et cetera. Um, man, that is so cool, the the, the people um, occupying it. That does make sense. You would need some anti-aircraft support, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the event that your little subterfuge didn't quite work. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to just leave it all up to them being fooled, you know? You got to right. have some backup uh, personnel in place. And that feels like a cool job. It does, doesn't it? I got to wake up and go to my fake house. Yeah, exactly. And I might get have to shoot something out of this Super guy. secret. Spy yeah. stuff. Right. And they also realized you can't just make a town. It has to have accoutrement, yeah. all the trappings of life. Can't look abandoned, you know. There have right. to be cars on the road, parked, exactly. you know, accurate looking that would read. Um, so they built some of these cars, parked them, uh, made out of rubber. And because they had to kind of begin with the rough edge approach and the boxiness of of making these fake cars out of wood and rubber, they started looking more, again, uh, Bill points this out, uh, Bill Y, uh, Yen, yeah, Y, I will interchangeably there, um, points out that they really kind of looked a little more like the cars of the 70s, yeah. those kind of boxy station wagony type cars or like a gremlin i think maybe yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 and then there was even this legend or tall tale that uh said they let a cow loose to roam around on the rooftop which is clever because that does look like i guess like an active town but also when's the last time you were on a city street and you just saw a random cow well yeah because i'm picturing the scale of this and it isn't s- smaller scale it's got these these are like Built to scale. So everything would be roughly the size of the real thing. So like a cow roaming around. It would be able to roam around the streets, but it would be a little odd. Why, why'd they do that, Ben? Why'd they do that? That never happened. They oh. actually didn't. Okay. Which it was discussed. Yeah, people just, I that's think it's weird one of those idea. stories yeah. that just kind of spread. I see. Also, I think that's too, too realistic. And I, I want to point this out because we're an audio podcast. There was a moment where I asked you about seeing a cow on the street and you paused. And for a second, I thought you were going to be like, December 13th, 2014, mm-hmm. Augusta, Georgia. Yeah, that'd be cool. Now, not a cow. I've seen random horses. Yeah. Oh, and crap, dude. This is, I've got, I meant to mention this. I was just in Boston for funsies, and uh, my buddy Frank. Frank! Friend of the show uh, went to uh, a movie theater in near Harvard, and we were wandering around Harvard campus, and guess what we were nearly accosted by? Turkeys. Yes. Yeah. Told man, they suck. I did not realize that. And you know, <laughs> I have a fear of birds. But yeah. I, I believe in the past, on one show or the other, we've talked about like turkey attacks in the yeah. Boston area yeah, yeah, yeah. because there are these wild turkeys that just roam free. If this part of the country had a reputation for free roaming cows, that might have been a smart move. Um, but outside of that, probably would have given away the, the game a little bit. As a friend to all animals, even unto the naked mole rat folks, I assure you, turkeys are terrible. They're scary, if dude. If turkeys were people, they would be criminals. I agree. And they gang up on you. They can't do. show weakness. I Googled it when I got back to the Airbnb, and I found a story from very recently about a Cambridge U.S. postal worker who was attacked by a gang of turkeys with such ferocity that he uh, fell over and broke his hip and had to have a hip replacement. Mm. They'll also just uh, fall out of trees. At you. And they get mad at whomever is around. At you, dude. Yeah. You know you know that would be my my yeah. waking nightmare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, you... <laughs> You feel, uh, the way you feel about turkeys is the way the U.S. feels about Japanese invasions. That's fair. You're like, that at any moment, the other shoe's going to drop. Bro, if I was standing on that beach waiting for that shoe to drop, looking for something coming at me on the horizon, my, like, the traveler moment in Ghostbusters where I'm picturing, you know, whatever yeah, the yeah, thing yeah, is yeah. that comes for me, it would be turkeys. Yeah. But we, I, my goal would be not to picture anything. But what it would come into my head, 
that would terrify me would be a giant turkey's coming They're just absolute pieces of trash. Uh, So, (laughs) wow, that's a hot take I didn't see coming today. They actually did a lot more work than than just what we've described, which is already a big deal. The folks who built and maintained this project at Plant 2, they also stayed active doing other stuff during the war. And there is a monograph, like a, a piece of short writing by Leroy, Leroy Robert Hansen. I like Leroy, but... I like Leroy, but it well, is the way, Leroy. The way it's spelled, though, is, is L, lowercase e, capital Roy. So I don't know, it might be Leroy. Leroy sounds more intriguing than Leroy. Leroy Robert Hansen, he was the chief of the agronom, ag- agronomy section and also involves in, in the Boeing project. And uh, I believe you mentioned the monograph, right? 1943? Yeah, the uh, it's got a super sexy title. Everybody settle in and get comfortable. The use of grasses and legumes for camouflage and dust control on airfields with a Seattle dateline. What? I know, right? Just the, mm, the tension. But the funny thing about that, too, is the idea of grasses and legumes and using different material. That's another thing that you can kind of see in the fabrication of, like, Disney World, you know, and, like, the fake mosses and things to achieve texture, like in the Avatar ride queue. Um, it, all this stuff it goes hand in hand. That's so fascinating to me, the, the, the intersection between entertainment and warfare, you know? Absolutely. And we know that they have had to surmount a couple of different challenges. One of the big things was camouflage paint. They had to get a texture that paint would adhere to, but that would also not interfere with air traffic. And so eventually, going to the point of things looking kind of rough up close, they eventually they said, we're going to use a crushed rock surface and we're going to roll it with an adhesive material for paved areas We'll use wood chips with cement for non-traffic areas. And then for the parts of the complex that are between or past the runways, the houses get increasingly less realistic. Right. They turn into like these concrete slabs. Ah, Yeah. Yeah, but but again. Just because you can't have a plane hit it. And again, you know, keeping with our whole, like, this is meant for an audience of 5,000 feet, um, the things that would be farther away from, you know, what would be perceived would be less important, sort of like some of the, you know, details on those matte paintings I was talking about. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, you know, speaking of uh, matte painting, I've got to just shout this out. I rewatched a film that captivated me for a long time from uh, Dust Till Dawn. Sure. Not the uh, not the Japanese crime bar the vampire that one. I hang out with, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, or that I hang out at. Yeah, Dustal Dawn has this great matte painting at the very end. Do you remember this moment where they spoilers? By the way, three, two, one, spoilers. It's dawn. They're leaving the bar. Presumably, the film begins at dusk. Yeah. Well, meh, you remember the film? No, I'm just saying the movie is it's dusk. It's now, it's, nice, now it's now yeah, it's dawn. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's a nice arc. Uh, the bar is named. Uh, twister and so as they're pulling away and this is so cool the camera pans out and it's that big matte painting and you see the bar is just the top of an ancient mesoamerican temple oh, that's right that's so cool. That is cool. Okay, now you got me wanting to watch that again. Uh, sequels, I think, probably uh, paying less dividends. But Have the first not one, watched it. I've only seen clips, but they don't look very good. But the first one is schlocky by design and a hell of a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And uh, the, and we're bringing that up because you, if you see matte paintings, like you're saying, in film, then you'll notice, if you look closely, that the detail does decrease the further into the quote-unquote background you get. And that's kind of what they're doing here with Boeing Wonderland. But to the title of that, the the absolutely captivating title of that uh, monograph we talked about, um, they would decorate these quote-unquote lawn areas and vacant lots with actual grasses and weeds designed by uh, the members of of, uh, Leroy Hansen's agronomy team. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're falling into it. We're calling them Leroy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, we have to. It's um, just so classic. It's like the Roy. Oh, yeah. It's like, or it's like you know, uh, the Rob Roy. Um, so Detley and his team um, are really knocking it out of the park with yeah. this uh, camouflage. This, this um, Bill uh, Y describes it as passive defense, which I think that's smart um, because it is not, you know, I mean, there's the there are the gunners there in case of an emergency, but this is pure 
subterfuge, you know, and it seems like it's, they're putting so much thought into it. How could it fail? Um, there were other initiatives in place, uh, planning active defense, such as uh, the execution of fire and air raid drills um, and the installation of some air raid shelters. Uh, and that was handled by uh, a guy by the name of Glenn V. Deerst, among other commanders that were in charge of these uh, these other kind of aspects of the whole deal. Another uh, news release um, from the Boeing News Bureau that came out in 1943 said that all of the plant personnel would be able to reach those sheltering spots, um, those bunkers, uh, in less than 12 minutes. So, you know, the safety of the employees, it, it would appear, was also pretty paramount. You know, let's, let's, not, let's not have any illusions. It was all for humanitarian reasons. They right. needed the workers to, to get the job done. You know? Well, because they also wanted to build war machines. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> 50,000 something. Uh, and it, it's strange because Seattle was, as we established, a unique problem for a couple of different reasons. If you have ever looked at the ground from an airplane, you notice that it's very easy to identify things through seeing the shape of the shore, like where land and water meet. So New York and San Francisco uh, are very easy to recognize because of their shorelines. Des Moines or Topeka is different because their appearance is defined by rivers and bays. And Seattle is between uh, Lake Washington and the Puget Sound. So it's very easy to find landmarks if you know what you're looking for. And for this reason, our buddy Detley says, we're going to have to do some more stuff with this Boeing project. We're going to camouflage the employee parking lots. They're just too big and too obvious. Uh, we're also going to cover sections of other adjacent land. And uh, we might need to make a fake river. Yeah, because to your point, you know, this is a feature that would be necessary to sell the illusion, you know? I mean, not necessarily the Japanese bombardiers were you know, intimately familiar with the geography of the United States, but, you know, to make it ring true, you know, to make it read as a successful illusion, you know, the way that stuff's laid out uh, is really, really important. Yeah, agreed, right? And, they, and again, lives are on the line here. The future of the world actually depends on this camouflage plan, even if it sounds silly. So he has this plan. He's going to reroute the Duwamish River. They never actually do this because here's here's the pickle. And Max, you, we were all talking about this off air too, man. Here's the pickle. There were not any further camouflage projects after 1943 because by the time they built this stuff out, the course of the war had shifted. Yeah. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? 
Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonneville. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, You know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's kind of like when you are, it's like imagine we both love cooking projects. Imagine cooking something really involved that takes hours and right as your ribs, right as you're about to pull those beautiful slow cooked ribs out of the oven, your partner or your friends show up and they brought takeout. Yeah. KFC. Right. And you're I like, love well, KFC I, in Japan. I, I tried. Right. Well, that's the thing though, too, <laughs> where we almost don't have any way of knowing exactly how effective this stuff was. Yeah, good point. Because it yeah, because of exactly what you said. And when we say the war shifted, does that mean it became more of a ground offensive or it just the what what happened? No, obviously not. And I wouldn't say that. What what, right. what what was it about the tactics that changed? Well, by that point, uh Japanese forces have been driven from those Aleutian Islands. And they were increasingly on their heels. So they were much less likely to take an offensive posture. Got it. Or to be able to do so, right? Uh, ben, and, check my yeah. dates. Guadalcanal was like 43, correct? Uh, I believe that's correct, yeah. That's like the first really big offensive. Because by this point in the war, the Japanese weren't really bringing the fight to the United States. The United States were bringing the fight to, to them. because Right, the island hopping and stuff. So the fear, the overwhelming paranoia of 1942 starts to fade. People are feeling a little, now they're just safer-ish, a little nervous. Mm -hmm. But then eventually that fades too, and they say, okay, that was a crazy couple of years, huh? And they go to the Japanese-American population of the U.S., and they say, sorry, we locked you up. And they're like, it's not cool. And they're like, ah. Are bad. Well, it's an, it's it's like you know. I recently watched the um the Aviator for the first time, and mm-hmm. you know during the height of of these wars, when production was so important and innovation was so important, you didn't you kind of spent the money and asked the questions later. Despite what we said about having to convince you know the brass that these camouflage ideas were good. You know, a lot of times this happened. They'd make tons of planes, or they'd do a, a project, and then things would end or change and you would basically have spent all this money for nothing. But that's just part of the nature of, you know, uh, being prepared, like the the Boy Scout code of ethics, right? Yeah, it's like Henry Kissinger would later go on to say, just get it done and then we'll make it right later. That's exactly right. You know, uh, also he is sort of like if a turkey was a person. So... (laughs) We'll How take, do you really feel about a, a dead person? Uh, yes, so, yeah. We can finally say that. That's true. That's true. I get a, get a lot of text messages about that one. You know, I was a little freaked out. I was like, I don't know if I want you congratulating me on my phone, guys. <laughs> but uh, but yes. Yeah, so now that we walked down the street to take a unprompted shot at a dead man, uh, we do have to tell you the 
these rooftop camouflage fake town things, like you said, there was secrecy involved, but it's tough to keep that stuff secret. Like if you lived in the town, you would know something weird was up. It looks like somebody's built a mini golf course Mm -hmm. or a putt-putt course on on top of the airplane plant. Well, and to our earlier point, you know, this stuff at the time would have been completely off limits to any civilians, uh, highly guarded, you know, classified, wouldn't have been any chatter about it on the, you know, the the, the radios or what have you um, and any communication that wasn't encrypted. But now we're left with these sort of weird kind of tourist attractions that are built right. on top yeah. of these, you know, these these airplane manufacturing facilities that are making these weapons of war. And the, like you said, people that lived near there, they know what's going on. You see the stuff being built, you know. Um, so how, what do they do? They kind of spin it as like a, like a public, like an act of goodwill to the public or right. sort of, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, guys, we were thinking of you. Uh, so. Okay, uh, Psych! <laughs> this is for your kids! <laughs> exactly. On July 17th, about a month before, around a month before the Japanese government officially announces unconditional surrender, the Army Corps of Engineers says, look, we've already sent out some contracts to private, private entities. They're going to dismantle these fake towns we're not going to keep these around too, too long. They are no longer relevant. So, for instance, like a company out of L.A. called LB Cotton Company, uh, they got paid a little less than $250,000 to take apart the uh, Boeing Wonderland within 150 days. So, all told, uh, we're looking at a cost of $2 million dollars. Right, two to three million dollars. Did we mention that, like, setting foot on these uh, fake roof, you know, top attractions prior to this would have been a a serious crime? Oh, we didn't. Yeah, we should. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, again, because of the levels of uh, classification and the secrecy around it, and you know, the fact that you could accidentally get yourself probably blown up by a, you know, a gunner. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, this would have been a big deal. And then within the course of a couple of months, the the tide turned, and now it's like this almost tourist attraction, and it goes from that to being very little memory of it, you know, having right. ever, ever having existed. Right. Were you able to find any uh, photos from this brief period of, of photo op time? We have uh, just a few. If you go to, and we mentioned this in part one, if you go to uh, rarehistoricalphotos.com. That's right. I remember yeah. that old chestnut. Yeah. I mean, we went, we went long, on, we went deep on this one. But uh, if you go to Rare Historical Photos, and shout out to Max for, for finding this, uh, you'll see a couple of different still uh, photographs where you can kind of see the edge of a roof with the fake trees and the plains beneath. And then you can see one guy walking around this uncanny uh, valley town. Trees look weird. They're the trees look weird. like they're made of polygons or something mm-hmm. like a bad 90s sim game. This is like know? a Sega Saturn version of a town. But again, from a distance, from a distance, uh, these would have looked like trees, you know? I mean, they knew what they were doing, man. This is super interesting stuff. The grass looks like grass. The snozberries taste like snozberries, you know? And then you really, folks, to get a sense of this, both the size of it and the weird scale of the buildings, check out this article. You can see... Um, you could see a couple uh, standing next to the plywood paneled uh, house. You see a little scale kind of, Yeah, know. see how short the houses are. You can see those hills we talk about because of the uneven sawtooth roof. Okay, so I had said something earlier about how everything was kind of to scale, and I think maybe we, we buried the lead on this. I'm sure we mentioned it, but yeah, they're like squat looking, you yes. know? Because again, from a, from a, uh, a height, you wouldn't be able to tell as long as they were wide enough. You wouldn't really be able to tell how tall the houses were because all you're seeing is the flat parts or, or the parts that are, you know, peaked. Um, so it's brilliant. As long as the scale of the, the the width and the length were right, the height didn't really matter. So they're these funny little kind of dwarf houses. Exactly. Like, the, like Chick-fil-A. Oh, man, that was such a cool thing. So here's a photo that I saw that I actually, I did not even think about this until right now, but I was scrolling through the photos and it's, the people walking outside of a building going to another building and above them is still the town because of course you have to have the town going over all of it. I'm like, right. I didn't think, it's like, it's not just like one big building. It's a giant campus. I yep. mean, 
one thing I, you know, I was in Seattle late last year and my buddy and I, we kind of did like a loop. We went across Mercer Island and stuff like that and we came down and we came up like, you know, through like the south side of like Lake Washington. And that's where a lot of the, you know, aviation stuff in Seattle was built and where it is still today. And I was going through, I'm like, man, this is like, we didn't have enough time. It was very like short trip there. But I'm like, man, next time we're here, I want to go check out all the Boeing stuff here. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is also, uh, this is where we see a really strange and neat thing. So it's an open secret. People aren't allowed around these mystery towns. But now that they are irrelevant and people have worked so hard on it, we get the sense that a lot of people said, well, we should at least let people know we did something. That's right. Guys, we worked so hard on our art project. And who knows? There might be another world war coming <laughs> right. down the line where we need to do this again. We need to uh, sort of patent our idea at the very least in the court of uh, public opinion. So Boeing as Boeing and Douglas Aircraft are like, okay, we're going to at least do some photos, guys. We built out these elaborate sets. So they got a bunch of female employees and said, get to the rooftop, stroll around. Yeah, just, that's what we're looking at, right? Yeah, so, just yeah. act like you're in a regular American suburb. And then these get these pictures get published in Boeing News and Douglas Airview and Boeing Magazine. Uh, and they get published. Look what we did. Right as, yeah, right as this stuff is being torn down. And within a few months, it's back to a regular rooftop. Also, by the way, uh, John Stuart Detley, the creator of Boeing Wonderland. Uh, he is... Hollywood bigwig, uh, art director, husband to the stars. He's or, starting yeah. to have a tough time. Too. Right, yeah. The star in question, Veronica Lake, uh, sex symbol, icon, movie star. Um, their relationship uh, began to disintegrate and it actually ended three months after um, she had an unfortunately uh, terminated uh, pregnancy. Um, she actually, I believe, took a tumble uh, right. and, you know, while filming and that led to um, a miscarriage. Um, and Detley, you know, he, he, he kind of had peaked, it would seem. He was never uh, able to kind of reestablish himself in the film industry and didn't go back to California for 20 years. Um, and then he married uh, another woman named Virginia Crowell. Um, and, you know, let's not forget, he did have a background in architecture after right, all. Right. So he did become a pretty well-regarded architect in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually, unfortunately, uh, he loses a second young child. Uh, their three-year-old passes away. Uh, they leave Seattle after that point. They spend time in Hawaii and Baltimore before settling in Southern California. While this is happening, the blackout paint is being stripped from the factories all up and down the coast. And uh, even John Francis Omer, the magician and camouflage enthusiast, has retired. Uh, this end of an era. End of an era, indeed. And you can find people who still study this, like Bill Yen uh, or Yene. Uh, you can also find folks like Mike Lombardi, who has an amazing job. I can't remember who I was. Oh, I was talking with my uh, one of my uh, sketch comedy buddies, Simon, about this. A lot of big companies have a corporate historian, and your job right. is just to be the nerd who knows about stuff. I would love that job. Depends on the company, though, right? Yeah, like a candy factory, a Wonka thing, that'd be nice. Unless the background involves, you know, the appropriation and abuse of, of uh, indigenous Lulus. people. Yeah. Did you read the original book, the Roald Dahl book? It's a little problematic, the way it they're addressed. intensely problematic. Yeah, because they're, yeah. like, basically, like, pygmy, right. African, you know, yes. indigenous people. Uh, also, if you want to learn more about Roald Dahl's dark side, I highly recommend this book. George's Marvelous Medicine. You yeah, I have read that one. It's yeah. a shorter one. It's a, it's a quick read, but it is pretty dark. Yeah. It's he, a, he has a handful <laughs> of those sort of more young adult kind of ones. It's a, it's a book where, um, just so you know, folks, if you want to be like the cool parent or the cool like uncle or aunt or something, when the kid's old enough, introduce them to stuff like Edward Gorey yeah. and uh, George's Marvelous Medicine. This kid, his parents leave to go shopping or something, and he decides that he's going to kill his grandmother. Okay. 
That's, uh, that's you, need, you need to say no more. Also, I remember one that, that probably did not age well is called The Twits. Oh, um, gosh. I forgot about that's a, that. That's a yeah. pretty rough one in I terms forgot. of uh, yeah. it's, uh, let's just say, lampooning of what today would be considered mental health concerns. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but still, we also have an episode about Roald Dahl and yeah. his uh, time as a fighter pilot himself yes. and how it's entirely possible that his good friend uh, um, uh, Ian Fleming mm-hmm. based a lot of the aspects of the James Bond character on Roald Dahl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, our corporate historian for Boeing, Mike Lombardi, he remains amazed in interviews. He's saying, look, we've got almost a century's worth of making great airplanes. You would think that most people asking us about the history of Boeing would ask about things like the B-17 or the 747. But nope, the most popular subject is the neighborhood on top of Plant 2. Everybody still is captivated by this, as are we. And I think... We've gone a lot of directions in this series, and uh, we appreciate you, as always, folks, for tuning in. We love weird, obscure World War II history, as you can tell from our past episodes. Shout out to our uh, super producer, research associate for this, Max Williams, throwing some semaphore out there. Who are? Helping us land the plane. How? Hurrah and huzzah. And a tosking. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. And thanks to Nathan Natoski for uh, keeping our marketing ducks in a row. Yes. Our podcasts. Yes. And thanks to Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister. Thanks to AJ Jacobs, a.k.a. The Puzzler. Uh, and thanks to... Let's see, who else? Who else? Oh, well, Alex Williams. Alex Williams composed our theme. Chris Frostiotis and his wizard beard, Eve's Jeff Coates, both of them here in spirit. And thanks to you, Ben, um, for, for we, allowing us to be each other's wingmen. And also, can I be the Iceman? I thought you wanted to be the Bagman. Well, I just meant in, in our in our Top Gun kind of oh, scenario. Oh, okay. I've never or seen Goose. Top Gun. I don't know either. I just know there's a character named the Iceman. There's as long as I can be your Huckleberry. You are. You're. You're always my Huckleberry. That is such a cool line. Pie, not thin. Mm-hmm. I think we. Uh, I think we got it. I think we do. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways, rolling vineyards, and castled hills, into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 